I cannot accurately describe just how much I love history. In particular, historical figures in colonial American history. It's a unique time. The Gutenberg printing press is only a couple hundred years old, and the Industrial Revolution is just reaching the 13 colonies. Anything seems possible, and there still are places on the map and ideas in the world that haven't been explored yet. Imagination is blooming. The colonies are a great place for a fresh start, and maybe make a name for yourself. The great American poet Phyllis Wheatley exemplifies and exudes the energy of everything great about the American colonies. Unfortunately, she also experiences immense hardships and grim realities many colonists had to suffer through. I'm Matt Dahlberg, and poet Phyllis Wheatley is a hidden gem of history. In 1761, a seven-year-old West African child makes landfall in the Boston Harbor along with the rest of the refugee slaves. No, Phyllis isn't fleeing her native land out of fear of her government, but rather has been taken from her home with seemingly no chance of ever seeing freedom again. She, along with the rest of the cargo, are deemed to be unable to perform rigorous labor and therefore have been passed over in the southern, more slave-centric colonies. Enter Susanna Wheatley, the wife of a tailor, takes in the young girl as a servant to the family. In addition to the routine chores one would expect out of the profession of a servant, the Wheatleys also insisted Phyllis was to be educated. It must have been quite the education. Phyllis thrived, and eventually the Wheatley family must have taken notice. Her introduction to knowledge and art led the young African child to write creatively. At the age of 13, a mere six years after her abduction, she was already a poet. Phyllis's inspiration for the poem on Messrs. Hussey and Coffin was a story she heard of a near-fatal sea excursion. Had I the tongue of seraphim, how would I exalt thy praise? Thy name as incense to the heavens should fly, on the remembrance of the goodness to the shoreless oceans of beatitude. Then should the earth glow with seraphic ardor. Credit to the Wheatley family. With help from Phyllis's adopted mother and European connections from the patriarch of the family, John, the poetry by 1771 was already internationally published. Poem crafted to honor the late life of George Whitfield, credited as being the father of the Christian evangelical movement, spoke of the greatness of that man, the God he served, and the country he called home. When his Americans were burdened sore, when the streets were crimsoned with their guiltless gore, unrivaled friendship in his breast now strove, the fruit thereof was charity and love. Towards America, couldst thou do more than leave thy native home, the British shore, to cross the great Atlantic watery road, to see America's distressed abode? Thy prayers, great saint, and thy incessant cries had pierced the bosom of thy native skies. Thou moon hast seen, and ye bright stars of light have witnessed been of his request by night. This work of art led to the young poet crossing the Atlantic Ocean once again, this time I imagine a bit more gleefully than the previous voyage. 
In London, the Wheatley name became well-renowned amongst circles of abolitionists, members of British Parliament, and others of nobility and class. She more than held her own amongst the upper, upper class in terms of connections and breadth of knowledge. Despite her unprecedented success, Phyllis's life was mired in poverty, sickness, and heartbreak. What could have been considered Phyllis Wheatley's two greatest years in her life because of personal triumph were also burdening times because of tragic deaths. Though she had her freedom officially by 1774, Susanna, who brought in the young girl, died that same year. Phyllis did marry longtime friend John Peters in 1778, but around that same time, John Wheatley died as well. Phyllis, now taking her husband's name of Peters as her new surname, was deeply impoverished, despite her proficiency and proliferate nature of her poetry. In 1773, Phyllis became the first American Negro to put to press, albeit British press, for lack of colonial support, a volume of poems. This was exceptionally unprecedented, and yet so underappreciated during this period of time in her life. Even after those 28 poems were published, Phyllis still had immense difficulty getting investors, or really anyone in the now United States of America, interested in a future book of prose. Due to both illness and lack of support, Phyllis died tragically at the age of 31 years old. Mr. Peters found himself behind bars at the time of his late wife's passing. What was his crime? According to local records, John was, quote, forced to relieve himself of debt by an imprisonment in the county jail. It's still incredible to me how, despite all the horrible things that happened to Phyllis, you could find almost no trace of it in her writing. For some people, that makes sense. Creative arts have always been used as escapism for millennia and millennia. However, Phyllis wrote about things she experienced for the most part. She didn't create new fantastic worlds. She wrote about America, and much to my astonishment and consternation at times, how great it was. That's right, the woman who was kidnapped at age six, forced into slavery for the majority of her life, died alone and penniless, thought America was great throughout her life and death. In fact, she compares her home to Zion, meaning a city where the Lord dwells. For a Christian like Phyllis, this means she considered America to be one of the greatest places in all humanity. How could someone with such hardships gain inspiration to be one of the first authors to supplant America over all others as the greatest nation in the world? This isn't an individual who spent her life in a bubble. Phyllis spent time on three different continents, so her experiences should not be passed off as someone with little worldly knowledge. Sometimes, great writers' motivation and inspiration can be vague ill-defined, or seemingly random. However, in the case of this 18th century poet, the content and context of her literary works mirror those of the Christian Bible and its message. I need to preface this portion of the program with a clarification. This section is not meant to be sanctimonious or even a plea to drop your current moral beliefs in favor of a more meaningful or fulfilling life. The main purpose I have to both you, the listener, and I, the speaker, is to provide historically accurate perspective on a larger-than-life figure in history. Phyllis Wheatley was a fully devoted Christian. She was devoted to the Christian God, 
evangelicalism, and social causes of that day that she found distasteful in the eyes of her god. It is truly impossible to properly discuss the impact of poetry of any kind if the themes or morals within the text are not evaluated. If the written words flowed well, maintained the parameters of the poetry format, but did not affect the reader, the poem might as well just be window dressing. Pretty, but does not affect much in the grand scheme of things. That said, Phyllis Wheatley is credited for impacting society. She was one of the first known abolitionists to reference biblical scripture when pleading with people to make America a free nation for all that inhabit it. In 1774, she wrote in a later published letter, quote, God has implanted a principle, which we call love of freedom. It is impatient of oppression and pants for deliverance. And by the leave of our modern Egyptians, I will assert the same principle lives in us. Wheatley's passion didn't stop with freedom from humans, but freedom from slavery in the form of sin. She extolled the greatness of Christianity in nearly all her writings, and exchanged letters with many notable God-fearing men of that time, including George Washington, members of British nobility, congressmen, and even preachers. Phyllis Wheatley turned tragedy and hardship into honoring her creator. She chose to do this with the subject matter entailing her first formidable experience in the poem on being brought to America. "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a Savior too, whence I redemption neither sought nor knew. Some view our sable race with scornful eye, their color is a diabolic dye, Remember, Christians, Negroes, black as cane, may be refined and join in the angelic train. Even in the last year of her life, her unfailing devotion to Christ shone through this poem, Liberty and Peace. The last work published during her life entails her optimism on seeing heaven and thanking God for her life in America, to which she refers to as Columbia, symbolizing America as the place of her enlightenment. So freedom comes arrayed with charms divine, and in her train commence and plenty shine. Britannia owns her independent reign, Hibernia, Scotia, and realms of Spain, and great Germania's ample coast admires the generous spirit that Columbia fires. Auspicious heaven shall fill with favoring gales wherever Columbia spreads her swelling sails. To every realm shall peace her charms display, and heavenly freedom spread her golden ray. This is despite being on the doorstep of death and not even having the dignity of publishing under her widely recognized name, she had to settle for being published as Phyllis Peters. It's thought that Miss Wheatley may have written upwards of over 150 poems, most never published, which have been subsequently and tragically lost to time. In 1916, Carl Nielsen composed his fourth symphony known as The Inextinguishable. I love that moniker, and I've used it to pair with Phyllis Wheatley in the title of this episode, not only because I think her hardships were unable to put out her fiery passion in poetry, 
but also in large part because Nielsen's 1916 symphony matches up so well with the life of Phyllis Wheatley. Incredibly joyous music in constant conflict with emotional and even stressful portions of the piece. Be sure to check it out if you want to know some more about the inspiration for this episode of the podcast. If you have someone in mind that you think should be highlighted as a hidden gem of history, or just want to learn about an undervalued time in history, feel free to email the show at hiddengemsofhistory at gmail.com with your suggestion. Hidden Gems of History could not be made without the help of so many people. This episode especially could not be made without the Poetry Foundation. Not only are they the source material for nearly all the information, but they helped me with questions and were very generous with their time. If you live in the Chicago area, please consider visiting them sometime, or at least looking them up on their website. They have a wealth of knowledge on poetry history. And the brick-and-mortar location at 61 West Superior Street is beautiful. It's like a museum mixed with a library. You can read some of their great poetry and history, all for free. They are open every weekday, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. I'd also like to thank Gabe Hurst for loaning me some audio equipment, as well as my mother, for encouraging me to pursue this venture. And thank you for joining me on Hidden Gems of History. I'm Matt Dahlberg.